Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer, and Andy's going to introduce our wonderful teacher tonight. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that overcoming all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual life, understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious and life-giving spirit both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Andy, the mic is yours. Thank you, Father. Uh, Dr. Stephen Smith is Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. There, for the past 10 years, he has taught and formed tomorrow's Catholic priests from dioceses across the United States. Dr. Smith graduated summa cum laude from Loyola University of Chicago, earning his PhD in New Testament and early Christianity. He's authored numerous essays in the 2012 book, The Word of the Lord, Seven Essential Principles for Catholic Scripture Study. In 2018, he released his second book, The House of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Temple in the Old and New Testament. Dr. Smith is a sought-out after-national speaker, and his CD titled The Resurrection of Jesus, Fact or Fiction, has reached over 15,000 homes nationwide. An array of other biblical topics are available on CD through his website, thegodwhospeaks.com, as well as at live events like this. He and his wife, Elizabeth, a cancer survivor, were married in 2000 and have two daughters, Isabel Marie and Olivia Marie. Please join me in welcoming Professor Stephen Smith. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Father. Good to be back as always. Thank you, Andy. It's always exciting. It's always a highlight of my, uh, of my month, of my week, whenever I'm at the Institute, because I know, frankly, that my own hard work and labors yield many blessings, not because of me, but because I know there's a spirit of prayer, there's a spirit of community, and there's also a spirit of rolling up our sleeves and doing some Joyous hard work, hard work and joyous, but definitely hard work because we have a lot to get to in the next couple of weeks. So let's get started, shall we? So this series, as you know, is called As Moses Has Written, Mosaic Authorship and the so-called Documentary Hypothesis. Now, if I were with you in person, uh, you know, I would say, ask for a show of hands, how many people have heard of the Documentary Hypothesis? Because I know that this is a pretty informed audience, I know that a good majority of you have at least heard this term or have some familiarity with it. But I want to assure you that whether you're just coming to this topic uh, a little bit blind, not really knowing about the particulars, or if you've had questions about this for some time, we are going to do some great good over the next couple of weeks 
not only to help you understand the question of who wrote the Pentateuch, and by the Pentateuch, of course, I mean the five books of Moses, right? Let's say them together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are called the Pentateuch. Five scrolls is what that means. These are the books of Moses. Um, and why we're doing this series, at least from my perspective, is to get some clarity on what Catholic biblical study looks like and what does the church teach on this critical question. But maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I'm interested and, you know, you're an enthusiastic teacher and I'm going along for the ride, but I don't really care who wrote, you know, the Pentateuch, whether it was Moses or whether it was someone else. And I, I've heard that from time to time. I overheard a couple of seminarians, not at Mount St. Mary's, but I overheard a couple of seminarians saying one time, like, and one guy said, ah, you know, I don't really, I don't really care whether it was like the JEDP or Moses. All I know is God's word. And that's all that matters. And that's, that's fine as far as it goes. But I believe that we can go further than that, and we should. And the Institute, I know, is filled with many, many people that are passionate to go further into their Catholic faith. And this is, I assure you, a question that really matters. Think about it. If we don't have confidence in the scriptures that give us the story of creation and the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, of original sin, right? If we don't just, and that's just the book of Genesis, the opening chapters. If we don't know our way around talking to people, let alone believing ourselves, who wrote that and can we have confidence in it and why and what's the history? What's the story there? Why has this come under some suspicion in modernity? And how can we as Catholics respond, right? With charity, but also with clarity. Those are my two favorites, charity and clarity. And that's what I hope for you to get out of this study. So let's dive in. Let's go right to the New Testament, shall we? And I want to take you right to the Emmaus Road. That would be in Luke chapter 24. So if you'd open up with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. And while you're turning, I want to thank Andy. He's always great to work with. He's a gentleman, and I always throw him all sorts of logistical nightmares, and he handles them with a plum. But uh, he was great in getting together, uh, as Father said, a very nice handout. So if some of you, you know, like to do the multi-screen, multitasking, I'm going to be walking through this outline with you. But if you don't like doing that, don't worry. Just follow along, read the scriptures, think, and be open, and then you have the document to go back to later, okay? Well, let's start with Jesus. So here we are in one of his resurrection appearances, right? The so-called Emmaus Road. I'm not going to read the whole passage. You can read that later, but let, let me take you right into the key text where he begins to reveal his identity. It's ultimately something that is revealed, right, in the Eucharist. But here it begins to unfold for the disciples that he talks to. So let's pick it up at verse 25, again, of Luke 24. And Jesus says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, just before I read the next key sentence, I would ask you to keep in mind that Jesus' use of the word prophet, in Hebrew it's navi or navim, prophets, is a little bit more broad than we tend to think of it. We tend to think of, when I say prophets, you probably think of Isaiah, right? Or maybe Jeremiah or Daniel or the 12 minor prophets, right? Hosea and all the others. But he means in a, in a broader sense, because in Judaism at his time, the writers of the Old Testament, 
including Moses, were considered prophets. Right? So to talk more about prophecy another time, we'll set that aside. But so already he's gearing us into what he wants to say next when he says uh, the prophets, what the prophets have spoken. Okay, here we go. Verse 27, St. Luke says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, did you catch that? From the standpoint of Jesus and the standpoint of the apostles, Moses is a prophet, right? He speaks forth the word of God. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, the risen Jesus, interpreted them in all the, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, I like to say he went on, they went on the greatest Bible study ever, right? With the risen Lord, as he opened up the scriptures from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and explained himself in all those mysterious ways. Now, this ought to give us pause to go back to my illustration of the two seminaries. I don't think they had, you know, any bad intentions, but but I want us to to, to rise up to a, a higher level of study here tonight and say this does matter because our, our, our risen Lord, when he was communicating and conveying himself to the apostles and to these disciples, goes all the way back to Moses and says, if you want to understand me, you have to go back to the Old Testament. You have to go back to the beginning of the Old Testament where we get the primary story, which is the Pentateuch. All right, and then just one other verse, and that's in the same chapter, verse 44. Okay, so look at this one. Jesus said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then it says, then he went on to open up their minds to the scriptures. We actually get here, and Father's right, I do teach the same material just as we're doing now to my seminarians. And uh, with this verse, um, I would underscore everything that I just said in earlier in the chapter. But I would add an additional point just for your edification, and that is that Jesus is here identifying the three parts of the Hebrew canon. Can you hear them and what he said? Let me read the sentence again. These are my words which I spoke to you, which was when I was still with you. That means prior to right his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, so in his earthly public ministry, right? On the Mount of Beatitudes and all the other places in his parables, right, in his teaching ministry that everything that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So why does he say the Psalms? Well, when I talk about the canon with uh, my seminarians, I explained to them that these are really the three parts of the Old Testament for, for Jews. We have the law of Moses or the Torah, right? Say that with me, Torah, which means law or laws. And then we have the prophets, and the Hebrew word is nevim, it's N-E-V-I apostrophe I-M, but it's a soft B, so Nevim, say that with me, Nevim. And Nevim means simply in Hebrew, prophet, or the plural im ending is prophets. And then the writings is the Ketuvim, K-E-T-H-U-B apostrophe I-M, say that with me, Ketuvim. And that would be the books that include everything other than the law and the prophets. So books like, you know, the Maccabees and the wisdom tradition, and at the head of that list, the Psalms. So I think Jesus is referring here to the entire Old Testament in this verse. Isn't that cool? 
All right. So with that said, we can now frame our discussion for these next three weeks with this understanding that, of course, it really does matter for all sorts of reasons, but not least of which is because our risen Lord went all the way back to the beginning, to the Pentateuch, to the Torah, to the five books of Moses, whatever you like to call them, to communicate himself. And if he did that, they must be, from a Christian perspective, very, very important. Of course, we know that they are. Make sense? So I want to give you a good Christological understanding for what we're doing and why we're doing it. Okay, now, Andy, if you would throw up that little uh, chart, I want to just introduce you to something. Don't get too uh, concerned about all the particulars, but I want to show you something that is uh, something that is in the handout, and I'm going to keep coming back to this. Okay, so what you have in front of you, should have in front of you, looks like a bunch of uh, shapes and circles and red and blue and all that, see all that? Okay, we're going to get into the particulars. I'm going to, in the process of the next three weeks, talk about a couple things. One, um, what is the earliest tradition about who wrote the Pentateuch? We're going to get into that. We're going to go back and see what the Pentateuch itself says about the Pentateuch, what some early Jewish sources like Josephus and others say. And then we're also going to look at what Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament says about who wrote these books. And we're even going to touch on a little bit of the early church fathers. So that will be sort of the traditional understanding, right? We can put all of that under the traditional understanding. And the reason we're going to start there is because then the next phase is for us to move through history up to the time of about the 18th and 19th centuries. And that's when things get a little bit dicey. And the traditional answer that, of course, Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, comes under a magnifying glass of scrutiny and eventually leads to something that's called, you guessed it, the documentary hypothesis. And by documentary, I don't mean a Ken Burns, you know, film on the Civil War or baseball or whatever else he's done. Those are great. I mean, as in the term document. So just a little bit of a, um, a tease about what's ahead. The documentary hypothesis is, is a hypothesis, and that's all that it is. It's a very significant one, but it's a hypothesis that tries to answer the question of who wrote these books, assuming for a moment that the great lawgiver Moses did not, and that we have some other person or persons involved. And the theory that evolved in the 18th and 19th century is called the documentary hypothesis, and it proposes that there were documents that's why we have that, why it's called the documentary hypothesis, that we have documents behind the Bible, right? So if you can imagine, you ever watch like Law and Order and they're always trying to solve a crime, they always use that cool like clear marker board, I don't know why. So you can see the actors through it and there's Maritzka Hargitay and they're all trying to solve, there's Ice-T, right? They got this marker board or clear board and they're right. So and then you can see them and see through it. So imagine instead of a Law and Order scene, imagine that the text of the Pentateuch was on a big transparent screen. You got it? Be a big board, right? Huge, probably like a billboard. Okay. What's behind the text? Well, that's what the documentary hypothesis is trying to get at, which as you can see is a, that's kind of a tricky question, right? Like how do you get behind the Bible, right? And so that's kind of where we're going. And it's, it's a very interesting and it gets very complex, but I promise you, I'm going to try to keep the main thing, the main thing. So for those who want more, I'm going to give you a couple sources here, and these are sources that I've used. Actually, they're right up there. You can take a look at them if you like. If not, don't worry. But that could be 
something if you have these or have access to them or are interested, as I mentioned, them, just so you have the bibliographic information. The first one is a book called uh, From Paradise to the Promised Land by an evangelical, an Irish evangelical scholar called Desi or Desmond Alexander. Very good conservative evangelical. And this is an introduction to the entire Pentateuch. So he goes through it, offers a blow by blow of all the, what it's about. But he's got two or three, I think three, actually maybe it's four, a number of chapters where he goes through the documentary hypothesis. And he'll go into much more detail, like case studies of tax. And I'm not going to get into all the, the weeds, as they say. But if you're interested, you can pick up his book. It's pretty affordable. It's a good read. Um, and he'll, he'll give you, if you want to say, I want to understand that more. He kind of went quickly through that. That would be a really good source. Another source is uh, Umberto Casuto. I really love this guy. He was an early 20th century rabbi. And he was one of the first to really give a devastating critique to this documentary hypothesis. In other words, he was one of the uh, ones who stood up against the crowd, swam upstream, because this was a very, very influential, and I'm, I'm being dramatic here, but it's, it's really important to understand, this is a tremendously popular and influential theory that affected you know, several centuries of scholarship that trickled down even to how people preach about the Pentateuch. Okay, so Kasuda comes along, and he was a believing Orthodox Jew who said, wait a minute, there, there has to be another explanation for all of these skeptical critiques that are being leveled at the Pentateuch. So he's one who really presumed, A, that the Torah is divinely inspired. And I'm not saying that all the documentary hypotheses are all you know, heterodox or they're all heretics. I'm not saying that. But there is a thread that runs through it of real skepticism about divine authorship and even about, of course, mosaic authorship. So Casuto stands up in the early 20th century and says, I'm going to rip this thing apart and really look at it. And he came up with, he went through all of the points of the documentary hypothesis. And not only did he, um, in my opinion, do an excellent job of shooting them down, but later he went on to write a, um, a very technical commentary on Genesis and Exodus, and never finished the project. But he gave us some great commentaries to give a positive answer to say, okay, if this is a unified text, right, from a single author, or at least substantially going back to Moses with maybe some modest additions after the fact, if that's the case, then what would that look like? So he wrote this really incredible set of commentaries. But this would be somewhere to start if you want to hear this thing dismantled, okay? And then last but not least, and this is the one I really want to recommend before we then dive in, is have you guys heard about this brand new uh, introduction to the Old Testament uh, by two friends of mine? I was just with one of them last week, um, Brant Petrie and John Bergsma. You may know those names. I know a lot of you know Brant Petrie. Hopefully, you also know John Bergsma, B E R G S M A. Well, they were for the last 10 years have been working on this, which is a thousand page introduction, a Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. And it's great. I'm even quote from it later. Um, but they have a nice. And probably of all those three sources, probably the most useful for you, I think, explanation and discussion of what I'm going to talk about. And so that in particular would, would say would be a great, and if for all sorts of reasons, it's great to have an introduction to the Old Testament. So it'll give you much more than some insights on the documentary hypothesis, help you understand the prophets and the wisdom of Solomon, everything else. So put that on your uh, wish list for Christmas, if not sooner. Okay. All right. So where to begin? Well, to start with, I realized as I was uh, driving to my office tonight that many of us may not have real clarity on what we might call the dating of some major events in the Old Testament period. And now sometimes that's 
sounds kind of boring or dry, but I want to give you five dates. I'm going to write them in the, in the commentary. You may want to write them on your notes or keep them. I don't, when I teach, I really don't do a lot of date stuff. I just find it's less useful. It's in a book, but um, a lot of us don't have the books. I want to at least give you five that I think are really key to hang on to. Okay. Because a lot of times people don't even know, like when was the lifetime of Moses, right? So if we're saying it was written after, like it's helpful to know when was the lifetime of Moses. So let me give you five key dates. Okay. Ready? Number one, and this is not on the outline, so you may want to write these down. Number one, let's go back to before Moses and talk about Abraham. Abraham lived for 175 years, according to the text of Genesis. But uh, to, narr- to, to simplify, we could say that the lifetime of Abraham is approximately in the 1800s BC, right? Second millennium, 1800s BC. That's where we're going to start. We're not going to go back before to know where creation. Let's just start there, right? Okay, and he lives for 175 years, and then we also have the patriarchs that follow after him. When does Moses come onto the scene? Now, this is our key figure, right? So this is important to know. And there's, there is some debate about the lifetime of Moses, but I'm going to give you the majority school, is that Moses, in other words, the, the story of the, you know, the, um, the ex, book of Exodus and um, the Passover and the giving of the law, Mount Sinai, all of that, the lifetime of Moses and those events is approximately 1400 B.C., Okay, so now we're still, we're moving up, but we're still 1,400 years prior to the time of Christ. Okay, that's the second one. Three is David. Um, this one always gets me. I always expect my seminaries to know this one, and I ask them, when was the lifetime of David? And for some reason, it befuddles people, but it's a real easy one to remember. It's 1,000 B.C. is generally here, right? Is the, the time we're talking about of David. And then Solomon, of course, his son and successor to the throne is just after him, so in the 900s there, right? So also we get the building of the temple and the beginning of the monarchy at this time, just to give you kind of some, the main spectrum here, right? Okay, now these next ones may be less familiar, but they're no less important, okay? So number four, let's call it the Assyrian invasion. And by that, uh, we're talking about the empire known as the Assyrian Empire, that came in, a lot of you know this, because I know you know your Bible pretty well, and it's described in various books, uh, the Book of Kings and other Psalms it's alluded to, but it's when the, um, this major world empire came through the Levant or the Fertile Crescent or ancient Israel, and they were able to capture and plunder the northern 10 tribes of Israel. They were not successful in getting Jerusalem, and part of that is due to the efforts divine intervention, of course, with the Holy Spirit, but also King Hezekiah. And so that's, that's also told in the book of Kings. But that happened in 722. It actually technically 701 to 722. But just remember kind of, okay, the 700s there, okay? The last dates to give you is the Babylonian captivity, also known as the exile, right? Not to be confused with the Exodus. That's earlier, right? with Moses out of Egypt. We're talking now about the exile into Babylon. And this is actually a range of dates. It's the 500s, but it it occurred in 587 BC, and it ended a generation later in 539 BC. And you may not need to know the particulars to follow everything that's going to happen, but I, I think if you at least have these in your notes, when I'm moving through things, you'll be like, oh, I got you. Okay. All right. So if Moses, Moses' lifetime is 1400 BC, when, just generally speaking, did this documentary hypothesis date the writing and formation of these 
various sources into what we call the Pentateuch. Because they're assuming it wasn't by Moses, it happened like evolution over about five centuries. And the answer is from about the 10th or let's say 9th century, give or take, down to about the 5th century BC. So now what you can understand the framework of what we're getting at. What this documentary hypothesis is going to say then is that what we call the books of Moses were not written by Moses or even in his lifetime, which would be the 1400s, right? Not even close to it. But they propose that it comes along long after Moses. In fact, give or take roughly in the time of like David Solomon is where it starts to just get moving a little bit. And it's not finished up coming together like a puzzle until after the exile, right? Until the post-exilic times. So we're talking about a radically, a radical departure from what we're going to look at now, which is the traditional answer that Moses wrote the books of Moses. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Sound good? Sound interesting? All right, let's dive in. So now if you have your outline, part one says, who wrote the books of Moses? A Catholic perspective. And that's what we're trying to get here. So we're going to start with the traditional information. We're going to go back to what the Judeo-Christian sources, meaning Old Testament, New Testament, and patristic sources, as well as some Jewish, say about this question, who wrote the books of Moses? And I think you'll be edified to know that up until about the 18th century, it was an open and shut case. Okay, so let's start with the Old Testament, right? Why don't we begin there? So I want you to turn to, I know it's on the outline, but I want to follow our protocol here and really ask you to open up your Bible because you want to mark these up. The first one would be Exodus 24. And I have so many, it's so great to be with you guys once again. I have so many scriptures to share with you that it's impossible for me to read every one that's in this outline. So you'll see that I read some and don't read others. And that's why one of the reasons I like an outline is I'll say there's more and you can go look at them for further amplification. Okay. But just to start here, here's what it says. And I like this text a lot. I'm going to actually show you four things that I think are interesting about this particular text. It's Exodus 24, 4. Okay, and here's what it says. Listen closely as you follow along. Moses wrote all the words of God. Now, just pause there. Technically, a prophet does not have to write anything. Can you think of a prophet in the Old Testament who didn't write a book? I can think of a couple biggies. What about, they both begin with E? You got it, Elijah and Elisha, right? Their story is told in scripture, but there's no book of Elijah, at least that we're aware of, certainly not in the biblical books, or a book of Elisha. Their words are recorded, pardon me, in the books of First and Second Kings. So they're known as non-writing prophets. So in saying that Moses is a prophet, which Jesus told us, right? That doesn't mean that he had to write anything. It only means that he's anointed by God to speak forth God's words. Okay. But here, Exodus goes further and says, not just that Moses, God's prophet and lawgiver, wrote down some of the words or just the law or just the stone tablets, but actually, it's very specific. Note the phrase here, all the words of God. And I think it's important. Please say that with me. Right? Moses wrote, say it with me, all the words of God. It's just important to get those scriptural words in our mind here, right? That's what scripture says to begin with. Moses wrote all the words of God. Now, lest you think I'm 
a fundamentalist, which I know at this point, if you have any experience with me, you know that I'm not. I'm going to later sh show you, I think, a what I think is a very solid Catholic answer. I'm going to lay my cards on the table and say that I firmly believe all the evidence points indeed to the Pentateuch going back, listen to me carefully, because this is what the Catholic documents say as well, substantially to Moses. And by substantially, I mean substantially. I'm not going to get into percentages, but substantially. Um, but John Bergsman, Brian Petrie in their book, and even the Pontifical Biblical Commission certainly allow for what we might call some flexibility that the Pentateuch reached its final shape later. So we don't have to, we can be, we can listen to the wisdom of the church and affirm, for example, Mosaic authorship without being strictly wooden about it. For example, at the end of Deuteronomy, it talks about when Moses died. Well, do we have to believe that Moses prophetically wrote about his death? Well, that's what Philo of Alexandria said, but the Catholic Church doesn't go that far. And we'll get into the Catholic documents later. You might be surprised to know that the Catholic documents that talk about this, on one hand, boldly and robustly affirm Moses as the source, as the author behind the Pentateuch, right? No holds barred, period, full stop. But at the same time, they allow for a process of composition. And that shouldn't really worry us that much. I mean, even in, in the prophetic tradition, you know, Jeremiah had a scribe whose name was Baruch, who has his own book of the Bible. And we know that according to the tradition of the Jeremiah books, that is Lamentations and the book of Jeremiah, Lamentations and Baruch, that Baruch was his scribe. We also know that Paul dictated some of his uh, texts when he couldn't apparently see well to others who, you know, so he's wrote in his own hand. So even in scripture, there's this, there's this idea of a source using another source. And the Catholic documents will go further to even allow that there was some, and I want to underscore this word, modest development. Okay. All right. So we'll get into that. But clearly, the Old Testament begins with this bold affirmation that Moses wrote all the words of God, rose up early in the morning and built an author under the mounts, is at Mount Sinai, right? And 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And then I want you to turn to the next source on the page too, but this is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses uh, 24 to 26. We'll look at these three verses in just a moment. So this one in Deuteronomy says, very clear. When Moses had finished writing down, not just writing down, but in a book, the words of this law to the very end, can't get much more specific than that. Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Okay, so as promised, there's four things about this scripture I want to show you that I think really is striking. Because maybe you're saying, oh, oh, the Bible's saying Moses wrote it, but it's, it's more specific than that. It's four things. Number one, in verse 24 of Deuteronomy 31, there is a word that's very significant. And the word in Hebrew is spelled K-E-K-A-L-O-H, kakalo. And that's from a verb which means a finished action. So what this suggests to biblical scholars is that there was a time when the Torah was, in fact, written down, not simply at an oral stage, right? So in other words, this scripture and the particular wording that's used here is significant because those who would say it was 
simply oral and it carried forth in an oral sense and then only later was written down, this scripture is undercutting that notion. Now, let me be clear. We believe with both the Old and New Testament that there is the oral proclamation and then the written. So like for the Gospels, right? We have the kerygma. You know what that word means in Greek, right? Which is proclamation, right? It's not like everything was just written down the moment it came out of Jesus's mouth. It's the oral tradition. And then eventually later the written gospel. And the same is likely true in a lot of these traditions of the Old Testament, including very likely the books of Moses, that there was substantial parts that were preserved in what we might call oral history. But, but at the same time, this text, I think, is a significant statement in the other direction that says it's not simply that it was oral alone, because the tradition itself speaks against that. And if it was not so, in other words, if somehow the book of Deuteronomy was some, simply wanting to pass off a charade, that would, have been, that would have been called out during ancient Judaism, both its critics and maybe even people from the inside that knew it was otherwise, but we don't have that. Okay, so that's the first. Second key term is the word book. The word in Hebrew is sefer, S-E-P-H-E-R. Say that with me, sefer, and that means book. In fact, in Hebrew, do you know what the book of Psalms is called? Well, I just gave it away. It's called sefer, S-E-P-H-E-R, tehalim. Say that with me. Sefer tehalim. Tehal, T-E-H-E-L, means to praise or praises. So sefer tehalim literally means uh, a book of praises. And so here the context saying that Moses finished writing these words down in a book, a sefer, is telling us about the apparatus that was used, that Moses actually wrote, not just spoke, and that it was also preserved in writing. So I think, and we're not even done with the other two here, but I think hopefully what you're seeing is that the scripture wants to make it very, very clear that there is this witness, not just from Moses, but that it is preserved precisely in writing. This is, I think, what the Pentateuch wants to make very, very clear for its readers, right? That there is this very careful preservation. In other words, at the time that Jews, say in Jesus's day, were opening up the scrolls in the synagogue and reading them, this particular scripture is reminding them, hey, these words go back to Moses. He's the author. He wrote them down and they were carefully preserved. Does it make sense? Okay. And then also here uh, to the very end, reinforces that first word, kaloa, about a finished action into the very end. It kind of just, it just reinforces the, the first point. So we have a reinforcement of this idea that he did all of it, is what, what Deuteronomy is saying, all of it to the very end. And then lastly, in verse 26, where it says, uh, as a witness to the people, that's a very important Hebrew word, and it's not used lightly. Uh, it's actually a legal or court term. The word is edah, and it means a witness. But that's often used in legal traditions where you're talking about legal matters where a witness would be brought forth. And so here, what the scripture is saying with regard to the term edah is you have this teaching of Moses that's not just preserved orally, but that he himself wrote down. It's written in a sefer, in a book. Did all of it to the very end, a finished action and that it stands as a witness against the people. In other words, that it reminds them, right, every time they violate the covenant, for example, that they are violating the law which Moses himself, God's lawgiver, gave them, okay? So in other words, when you're reading the book of uh, Deuteronomy, you're reading the words of Moses. That's what Deuteronomy is saying. 
Okay, so far so good. All right. Now, if you turn your page, page two of the outline, we could add to these scriptures from Exodus and Deuteronomy. I could give you a whole bunch. Uh, I'll just give you a couple so you can see it's not, these aren't anomalies at all. Um, this is under um, numeral two there, corroborating Old Testament evidence. There's a bunch of these. But for example, um, Nehemiah 13.1, it uses Sefer Moshe. That would be Book of Moses. Um, it uses that phrase. So it's referencing the Pentateuch, not just as a body of teachings, but as the way theologians would put it as a codified text, right? We could say that in some sense, yeah, there's a narrative here, there's a story here, but from a Jewish rabbinic perspective, this book really is law, right? And so law was interpreted and used to adjudicate all sorts of things in daily Jewish life. And so when Nehemiah says, say for Moshe, he's saying, okay, I want to talk about uh, not just the words of Moses or ideas or concepts of Moses, but this codified text that we have, right? Much like we might talk about our United States of America constitution, right? We can even talk about the articles and so forth. So there's a similar process here of talking about as, as a codified legal text. And um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel use very similar terminology, slight variations on this. And we can, there's some other texts in there. So I could give you um, an arm's length of more, but hopefully you, you see the point. Here I would pause and sum up and say that when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, these 46 books of the Old Testament, whenever and wherever it comes up, the books of Moses and then other non-Mosaic books all point in one direction, that Moses was the one who wrote these words. They're called interchangeably the books of Moses, the words that he wrote, the law. These are almost used interchangeably, almost like synonyms. It's, it's unanimous. There's no doubt about this in any of the texts in um, these Hebrew scriptures. Now, we can go further and say, when you go to outside of the Bible, but in the world of Judaism, because that's another thing, right? Like, what about beyond these religious texts of the Bible itself? Because you say, well, that's a circular argument, right? Of course it says it, so what, right? But what does Judaism say? Well, you won't find a source in the, at least in the ancient world or in most of the medieval world that would question or impugn mosaic authorship. And that's, that would be my main point for you to take away. But I can give you just a couple of examples, and these are heavy hitters. First, Josephus, who you know is one of the most important historians of, Ju of ancient Judaism. And this is on your outline, so this would not this would be something you pick up on the outline, page two says, when Moses had spoken thus, he gave them the laws and the constitution of government written in a book. And that's kind of saying what I've just been summing up, that what we have in the corpus of work that we call the Pentateuch or books of Moses is that definitive final form of the law that goes back to Moses himself. So basically, just a full-throated affirmation that what we're dealing with in these books are none other than the words that Moses spoke and himself wrote down or supervised seeing written down, okay? Philo of Alexandria is not a historian, but a philosopher. And he also argued in a several places, including in, he wrote a biography of Moses called The Life of Moses. And in one part of that book, he says that Moses even wrote a prophetic account of his death. And that refers to, you can look it up on your own, uh, Deuteronomy, 34, 7, it's the very end of, very end of the book of Deuteronomy, where it talks about Moses' own death. So 
Philo goes all in. He's like, yeah, I mean, he even prophesied about his death, right? Now, as I said, the, the Catholic understanding wouldn't press it that far by a long shot. But at the same time, it's certainly in this same vein of affirming mosaic authorship of this, what we call the Pentateuch, okay? And there are certainly other voices that come along. The Babylonian Talmud, which is a major interpretive tradition, uh, the rabbis and doctors of Israel, and various texts that you could draw up all point in that same direction and over and over again. You can't find a source that will say, no, Moses only spoke them but didn't write them, or that Moses, like, or you don't even get something like, well, Joshua did it. You don't even get that. It's just a full-throated, unequivocal affirmation of Mosaic authorship. Okay, so let's move to the New Testament, shall we? Now, here, what you find is that throughout the Gospels, and in fact, throughout the New Testament, Moses is, in fact, quoted time and again, either by the evangelist or sometimes in the mouth of Jesus, as the author and source of the Torah. Um, let's turn to a couple and look at these. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, and here it'd be verse 24. And this is also what's known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus' last of five discourses in the book of Matthew. Matthew 22, verse 24. Uh, the same day, the Sadducees, it says, came to him, to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. That's a whole other topic. And they asked him a question, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry a widow. And he goes on and tells that story. And so in this text, the Sadducees uh, are basically quoting Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. And there you say that simply the point is that they assert not just that it's the Torah, which they could say, the law, that was just simply one of the Torahs, but they call it the book of Moses. Let me give you some others. Uh, this one is interesting, and this next one actually is in Jesus' mouth. It's in John's Gospel. Uh, I'm kind of torn between. I want to give you a lot, but I don't want to, like, redundancy. I'm like, you have to take my word. Or I, can, I can go on a list, and they're all going to give you different examples. So they're on your list, and I'll, I'll give them to you so you can look them up yourself. But this next one's from John 7, verse 21. Let's start there. Jesus answered them and said, I did, uh, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man upon the Sabbath. So he's teaching here about the Sabbath. And again, he doesn't simply um, talk about what the law says, which he could have done, but quotes Moses. Luke chapter 20 and verse 37. Here Jesus is in this debate about the resurrection, right, with the Sadducees who didn't believe in it. And beginning in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are accounted worthy to attain that age and do the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so Jesus here talking about it. Now, to make his point, as a good rabbi, he teaches from Scripture. So he says, but uh, that the dead are raised, verse 37, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. So he's talking here about Exodus chapter 3, right? where God called, the Lord God calls Moses and so on. Um, let me give you some other ones. You can just write these down if you would like to do some Bible homework. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 10. And there Mark is quoting, uh, and Moses is explicitly mentioned in regard to the Decalogue. And it, Paul gets in on the action in Romans 10, verse 5. 
Uh, and there's a number of other ones on your uh, on your page. And then on the outline, um, John's Gospel also records. This is an important one, guys. John 145, this is in your outline. But also turn there if you would so you can see it in your text. Where it says, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law. Now, that's a reference to, and I'm going to give you this one, Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses talks about the prophet like Moses coming after him, right? Additionally, this is on your outline, Matthew 8, verse 4, Luke 2, 22. I think that one is regarding the Annunciation. John 5, verse 46, we looked at that one. Acts 3, 22, Romans 10, 5, which I gave you, Hebrews 7, 14, and the list could go on. So in all these scriptures and more in the New Testament, it's very clear that they echo the Jewish tradition which shouldn't surprise us, right? But the point still needs to be made that when you look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament tradition, as well as ancient Judaism, you have a full-throated affirmation that Moses is the individual responsible for these books, and not just in some loosey-goosey sense, but actually wrote them down. And then, as I show in the outline, and I didn't give you these actual texts because the outline would just grow and grow and grow, but let me just give you some of the people that give full-throated affirmations in the early church. Justin Martyr, in his first apology and in his dialogue with Trifo, does similar things as the New Testament. He, he, he quotes the Old Testament in refuting various heretics, and in so doing, he makes the unequivocal assertion that Moses is the one who is the guarantor, the authority. See, in Judaism, you don't have a canon of the Old Testament even at the time of Jesus. It's coming together. We can see that from the Emmaus Road piece that we saw, right? So the canon is being shaped, but it's not completely, we might say, ratified in Judaism. But if you're curious about that, I can explain it more. Otherwise, I'm just going to pass over it. But I want to make a point that in the time of Jesus, the canon was still of the Old Testament, was still fluid. Um, as I like to tell my seminarians, it takes a magisterium unified to kind of definitively declare and judaism doesn't really have that so it's kind of coming together and so those particular books and also this is important the authorities behind them were the guarantors in addition to of course the holy spirit the point then is that those named persons like daniel and job and moses among others when those names were spoken or written about, connected to those books, that's what gave them the credence, right? Those were God's chosen servants. And so the point is that Justin Martyr, we don't have an Old Testament canon, he refers to those books and to their authors, the books of Moses, by name. So does Irenaeus in combating various heretics and is against heresies, book one. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas, another very early document, as well as Clement of Rome. And that there's certainly more I can give you, but... The point is that what we have then is a trajectory, right? That's what I think what we're seeing. Beginning from Jewish scripture to the Jewish world and then to the New Testament and what we might call the New Testament world, what are we seeing? We're seeing this arc of continuity of affirmation over and over and over again without any interrupters coming in there and saying, I beg to differ. It's not, I mean, there are those that are saying otherwise that Justin Martyr's dealing with. But these are not Jewish or Christian sources. These are Gnostic sources or other heretics who have their own agenda. And he is taking them apart, right? And showing them, of course, this is what we believe. Now, let me fast forward a little bit because we're almost out of time. This continues all the way in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition until we get to what we might say just after the high Middle Ages. 
And that is where things begin to start to turn a corner. So let me just mention a couple of points here because uh, we, we kind of are moving forward rapidly towards the more skeptical period of Julius Wellhausen and these other skeptics we're going to meet in the 18th, 19th century. But there is a middle story to tell. And I want you to know about that. We can't just leap from Justin Martyr to Julius Wellhausen. So all the way through 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century, we're not really encountering any great shakes as far as anything going on that's other than what I just shared with you in that Jewish and Christian tradition, okay? But we begin to get some particular questions. For example, one rabbi in the 900s allowed for a few post-Mosaic editions. This is the bottom of two. So one rabbi, Isaac ben Jesus, interesting name, said, well, of course, all the Pentateuch is from Moses, with the exception of Deuteronomy 34 that I just mentioned where it talks about Moses' death. So he would kind of dispute Philo and say, well, we don't have to go that far. Those are the kind of picayune things that we're getting sort of at that time. But on the other hand, you have others like the great Moses Maimonides. You may have heard of him, one of the greatest medieval Jewish philosophers um, in Jewish history. And is, I've actually seen those who've been to the Holy Land, maybe Father Hezekiah pointed out his grave, which is actually in Galilee, in, in the city of Tiberias. He took it in a more spiritual direction. When these little questions are coming up, he said, look, the Pentateuch is not written by Moses. It's written by the Holy Spirit. So he was, had a kind of a mystical apologetic, you might say. His answer was to say, don't worry about whether Moses prophesied his own death or he didn't. The answer is that it wasn't really Moses. He was simply the instrument, and it was God, the Holy Spirit. So you get this push and pull back and forth. But even so, the point would be up until we get until about the 17th century, what is intact without any bumps or bruises is what we've just reviewed, is that the Old Testament, Jewish tradition, New Testament, early church fathers, medieval fathers, as well as medieval Judaism, all the way up until at least about the 10th century. You don't have a single voice and then you get a little bit of quibbling, but that's about all you have. But next week, we, we're going to see how a bomb goes off, um, beginning with a number of figures and leading up to this German Julius Hallhausen, who you're going to learn more about. So what I would ask you to do for next week, if you can, is number one, be praying that God would continue to lead and guide our study together. Talk about it with one another. You can begin working through some of these questions together. Use the outline, look up the scriptures, mark up your Bible. When we come back, we're going to get into page three, and we'll try to move, make some headway. And I want to do um, a couple things just quickly, just so you know where we're headed. I want to show you what the strengths are of the documentary hypothesis. I want to lay it out positively, say, here's what it showed. All right? I don't want to just throw it under the bus and be that kind of guy. I want to show you here's what, you know, I mean, it is a substantial, very complex theory about which almost a whole shelf in a library has been written, right? A giant shelf. And so I want to show you in, in simple ways, what did it say and what did it begin to, to tell us might be going on? Okay. Then in our third week or somewhere between second and third week, we'll critique that theory. And that's where we're going to spend um, our last bits of time is talking about how this theory has not by any means destroyed mosaic authorship has raised good questions but we have fantastic answers and i think you're going to really enjoy them we're going to use that a uh, little visual that Andy showed much more next week so hang on to the outline and guys we're just getting warmed up as el pacino said in scent of a woman uh we've got much more to go 
And uh, whatever questions you have at this point, I think will become much clearer by the time we're all done next week and the week after. I can't wait to come back with you and continue. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. And uh, I can't say enough. I mean, I I remember making the mistake, I guess someone would say it, though I came out alive, of uh, studying religious studies at uh, for undergrad, but it was not in a trusted place. <laughs> But I remember seeing religion in the in the major, so I was like, "Oh, that's nice." And I remember for the first time that you, uh, Dr. Smith mentions this guy Michael Kukin late, later on in the handout, and I remember taking you know some kind of course on like intro to the Old Testament, something like that, and the professor handing us this book saying, "You know, go read the first couple of chapters." And I remember reading and being like, "What is going on?" You know, I mean, you got to realize that a lot of these people are going into college and they don't have any kind of formation right. in this. And what, what Dr. Smith is going to be laying out in more detail next week, it may be the first time anyone hears anything in detail about the old Testament. So all of a sudden you, you're like, whoa, but this is pretty detailed. So it's probably, probably got to be legit. You get really confused. Just a very quick rebuttal to that. I'm so glad you brought that up, not, not to target Coogan and put a target in his back. But in the secular books, and there's many of them out there, and that's why I'm so happy about Petrie and Bergsman, their book, because it's a really sound Catholic introduction. There's probably 10 or 20 or more of these kind of secular approaches to the Bible. Now, I hope you all learned a lot tonight, but even if some of this was just review and gave you the addresses of scriptures to point to these things, the reason I wanted to start here is because a lot of those books they don't even mention this. You've got to go dig around and find it for yourself. Some of the books I've seen give a paragraph at most, and they say, well, of course, the traditional answer is Moses. But they don't even really show you the depth of it that I've tried to show you in the last 40 minutes or so. And the reason I wanted to start there is to lay a very solid foundation. But we're going to critique the theory. We're going to give it a stew, but we're also, like Thomas Aquinas, you know, let it speak for itself and show the strengths, but also the weaknesses. And some of that may have to wait till the following week. So don't go anywhere after next week either. We're not done. And believe me, it's not over until the fat lady sings. So there's a lot to go next week and the week after. <laughs> I want to encourage you, to, you guys to do two things. One is those states that Dr. Smith mentioned that give us like that broad outline from Abraham to the Babylonian captivity. That's the kind of stuff that's just, that's gold right there to have those kind of things ingrained in our minds. I really encourage you to make flashcards. It's five things. You just review that kind of stuff, right? Because it's so important for us to have these key dates. Otherwise, whenever you hear a date, it doesn't mean anything because you have no point of reference. But if you can establish a sort of core series of uh, you know, really important events, that allows other things to have a point of comparison. But that kind of stuff is really good to memorize. If I can put in one la last pitch briefly, just for a moment for next week. I was talking with a seminarian once. And he had read some book by a Catholic theologian in the 50s or 60s. I mean, a lot of this got picked up in the 50s, 60s. And a lot of people just repeated, you know, the, oh, it's documentary hypothesis. So he read it in a book, and it was a Catholic book, and it wasn't a bad book. But the author of that book did not really do that seminary in any justice because he explained, you know, what these sources are, but he never got to the roots, which we're going to do, of why some of this documentary hypothesis is so deadly. Let me just give my cards a little bit away. I was in a class in some of my doctoral studies where one of the books I read and even one of the professors made the audacious claim, and it's going to shock you, but that some of the parts, really most of the Pentateuch, in fact, he believed was fictionalized. And I'll explain how that 
they would get to that point next week. And I'll give you the scriptures, and that's the, the lowdown on that. But that's you – know, so when a seminarian says, oh, I want to know the difference between the J source and the P source, understanding these as, like, ideas, that's fine. But you have to understand that at the core of this, in some ways, is a rotten apple. There is a bent, and you're going to see this, that underneath some of it, not all of it, I want to be clear that sometimes, you know, you may find a Catholic, I don't want you to kind of, oh, that guy's a heretic because he talks about, I mean, he may not know or be aware of the roots. We're going to get to the roots. Right. So I need to talk about traditions and what the J source is and what this source is and all. We'll do that. But we want to get to the core, and I want to show you, I want to pluck out the roots and show you that at some of it was some very, very dark stuff, saying that the Pentateuch really was just fabricated long after the time of Moses. And that's what we have to really be able to respond to. Mm -hmm. so we'll do yeah, some of that certainly. next week, week after. Certainly. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. We really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.